0: No one told me what it would cost. No one explained to me what I would have to uh, sacrifice to spend the rest of my life following Him. I, I remember plainly hearing the gospel in a Sunday school room, at least, uh, at least the parts about the love of Christ and the, the promise of living forever. I remember the teacher telling me about heaven and hell. Uh, she explained that all of my sins would be washed away if I turned to Jesus and repented of that sin and put all of my faith and trust in Him and followed Him. And all of that was true. And all of that is wonderful. In fact, it's necessary for us to hear that and to understand that. But I don't remember ever hearing anything about having to lose everything so that I might gain Christ. Yet the Apostle Paul had a lot to say about that. In Philippians chapter 3, actually in several other places in Scripture. And of course, if you're a Christian and, and you're trying to share the gospel with someone, all the parts about sacrifice and self-denial and loss and suffering, those aren't, those aren't exactly selling points, right? And so I think when we tell people about Jesus, we tend to focus on the parts that sound the most attractive because the last thing we want to do is scare people away before they even consider following Jesus, right? And I understand that. However, when you look at the way that Jesus presented himself to people, he didn't hold anything back. He laid it all out there. He didn't seem to to ever have any qualms about sharing all of the gospel, including the hardest parts. It seems that Jesus wanted people to consider all of it, to count the cost Of following him before making that commitment in Luke 14 26 he said if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters yes even his own life he cannot be my disciple well just say what you mean Jesus Right? Don't hold anything back on our account. And by the way, hating, uh, that Hebrew word there in that verse, miseo, uh was used as a Semitic expression to mean loving less. So he wasn't telling us to hate in the way that we apply that word today. But he certainly makes his point, especially considering his audience was a massive crowd of unbelievers. So he opens up with this very strong, very challenging statement regarding what it means to follow him maybe as he goes he softens the message a bit though let's see verse 27 whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple now that's comforting the cross was a symbol of death crucifixion in other words if you're going to follow me you're going to have to give your entire life to that pursuit you're going to have to die to yourself Verse 28, For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be. Cannot be my disciple. The stark and sobering truth is Jesus and the rest of the Bible are crystal clear. You're either all in for Christ or you're not in at all there's no middle ground there's no Christianity light there's no pre-season there's no warm up round there aren't varying levels of Christianity that we get to choose from right from the beginning from their first introduction to the gospel Jesus said to everyone that he encountered in one form or another you're either all in or you're not in at all so what's it going to be? It's an all-or-nothing proposition. He never held back the difficult or challenging parts of the gospel. He just told people right up front with honesty and clarity what they were getting into if they were to follow him. And yet that hasn't stopped people over the centuries from trying to live their lives partially in, somewhat committed, willing to give some but maybe not all which is particularly prevalent I think in western church culture where our affinity for living comfortable uh, to the point that we try to avoid all discomfort at all times is in perpetual tension with the teachings of Christ which embrace suffering sacrifice self-denial as much as they do blessing and abundance and so we've relegated our identification with Christ to portions of our lives, keeping, keeping uh, some of those areas of our lives to ourselves so we don't have to feel bad when those areas of our lives that don't resemble the will and way of Jesus Christ present themselves. We have me time where we can focus on ourselves and what we want, guilt-free. And then we have God time at church or a community group, a Bible study, and so on. The result of that is we live these segmented, disjointed lives with some areas devoted to God and some areas devoted to ourselves. And one of the real problems with living that way is that the work, the the purpose that God created us for and called us to doesn't get done through us to the extent that it should because we're not all in. Which not only affects us and our own relationship with God but it affects all of those around us who are not experiencing the Spirit of Christ in us the way they should be and there's a ripple effect to that as we're going to see in our story today when we're not all in with every part of our lives we can actually do more harm to the body of Christ his church than good which is precisely why Jesus cautioned people even those hearing his message for the very first time, that if you're not all in, then you're not in at all. He said, hey, count the cost before you follow me. Because we cannot completely follow him without complete allegiance, total commitment in every single area of our lives. Of course, that doesn't mean we won't falter or fail. We all do. We all struggle with commitment to Christ in certain areas of our lives but we never stop giving ourselves over to him as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling as Paul says in Philippians 2 12 this is no casual commitment when he talks about fear and trembling we continually commit and submit every area of our lives to him because his love and his design for the church for his people it demands that we're all in There is no middle ground. And so not only are we responsible to tell people that, all of it, all of the gospel with honesty and clarity right from the beginning, just as he did, but also we have to choose for ourselves whether or not we're actually going to live that way. Are we all in for Christ or not in at all? Because anything less than all in means that all of this All of the time and effort and energy expended as a community of faith, this local church, will amount to very little. It will will just scratch the surface of what could be accomplished through us if we're truly all in. Because Jesus was all in for us. And that commitment demands nothing less from us. In our story today, then, as we continue to work our way through the book of Esther, we'll find examples of both. God's people who were not all in and those who were and the effect uh, of each, not only in the lives of those individuals who made those choices, but in the lives of so many others who were affected uh, by those choices. And the message, uh, this message should resound in the church today as we are faced with the same choice, all in or not in at all. So let's pick up the story at the beginning of Esther chapter 3. It's right where we left off last week. And uh, these are really short chapters, so we're going to actually work through both chapters 3 and 4 today in order to capture a more complete view of this message. So let's read it together, beginning with verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. So the Persian king Ahasuerus... Promotes a man named Haman to the highest post in government. And it says that Haman was an Agagite. Which is to say that he was a descendant of Agag. Who was the king of the Amalekites. The ancient enemies of Israel. Which is, uh, which is going to factor heavily into this story. So just keep that information in mind as we read on. And we'll come back to it. Verses 2-6. through six. And When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. So at a casual reading, this whole sequence seems a bit odd. First of all, why mention that Haman was an Agagite to begin with. Second, why did Mordecai refuse to bow to him? The, the, uh, the 4th century BC historian Herodotus tells us that bowing before one's superiors was a routine part of uh, a Persian court etiquette. And we hear nothing of Mordecai's refusal to bow to anyone else, including the king. So he apparently had no problem serving and bowing down before the pagan king Ahasuerus, which he would have certainly been required to do. And then later in chapter 8, we even see Esther throwing herself down at the king's feet. So why would Mordecai refuse to bow before Haman here? And third, why did Mordecai's refusal to bow to Haman make Haman want to annihilate all of the Jews instead of just punishing Mordecai? And so this is where... The story gets very interesting. And to fully understand it, we have to go back about six hundred years earlier to the reign of King Saul in First Samuel chapter fifteen, which is intimately connected with this story in Esther. Okay? King Saul was the first king of Israel, and he was of the tribe of Benjamin, which we see in First Samuel chapter nine. Agag was the king of the Amalekites during that same period of time. The Amalekites under King Agag were the first people to ever attack and to try to destroy the Jews as a newly formed uh, covenant nation. And in fact, these Amalekites under Agag were uh, a nomadic people. They would frequently raid Israel and strike against Israel. So they were bitter enemies with the Jews. And as a result, God cursed them and ultimately condemned them to extinction, which we see in Exodus 17, 8 through 16. So King uh, Saul was king of the Jews. He was a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin. And in Esther 2.5, we're introduced to Mordecai, a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin. Mordecai was a direct descendant of King Saul, the king of the Jews. And then in Esther 3.1, we're introduced to Haman, the Agagite, meaning Haman is a direct descendant of King Agag, the king of the Amalekites. So it begins to become a bit clearer now as Mordecai and Haman represent the ancient bitter rivalry between the Jews and the Amalekites. And so when Haman, who is identified as the Agagite, so obviously his lineage is known, when this descendant of Agag is promoted and everyone is required to bow before him, Mordecai, the descendant of Saul, stands his ground and refuses to bow to this enemy of his people. It's why when asked by the king's servants in verse 3 why Mordecai would not bow to Haman, he responds in verse 4 with, he had told them that he was a Jew. And so just as the Amalekites were constantly persecuting God's people, even to the point of trying to completely wipe them out, Haman is now determined to carry on the family tradition. Verse 6 says, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. That includes, by the way, the Jews that had returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and the wall because they were still under Persian control. And so Haman wants to get rid of all the Jews. And as we'll see in a moment, he formulates a plan to do just that. But before that, We see the very first cost associated with Mordecai's stand against Haman. It says, Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. They were looking for a fight. You see, the servants of the king, those who worked with Mordecai, remember he was in the employment of the king, they turned against him because of his stand for righteousness. He lost favor at work because he took a stand, and it begs the question for all of us today, if following God costs you popularity, are you still in? Are you still all in? If following him costs you your favor? For most of my life growing up, Calling yourself a Christian in our society was almost like calling yourself an American, right? The two went hand in hand. But just in our lifetime, we've seen that begin to change in our culture. Calling yourself a Christian today isn't nearly as favored a status in a broad range of cultural circles as it once was and it certainly isn't advantageous to claim to be a follower of Christ like it used to be. We've seen the ramifications of that in the past few years where there's been litigation against Christians who've refused to bow to government mandates that command us to honor policies that are emphatically anti-Christ. And some of that, by the way, may actually be good for the church in the end. So I'm I'm not even completely despairing uh, that paradigm shift in our country because in many ways, I think it simply helps to ferret out the wheat from the chaff, the true believers from those who are Christian in name only. But the point is, when that pressure is applied when our favored status at work could be threatened because of a stand for righteousness, when our popularity with friends and peers could evaporate because we refuse to bow to the constantly changing moral will of pop culture, when following him has the potential to become costly in the way that others view and respect us, are we still all in? Or do we shrink back and blend in with the crowd so as not to Make waves or compromise the favored perception that others have of us. I had a job many years ago, before I was in church ministry, more than 20 years ago. And in that job, I would had biannual reviews, and my supervisors, I would get the highest marks for my job performance consistently year after year. And I dealt with members of the public in that job, and I, they would write letters to my supervisors and superiors because of how pleased they were with the job that I did and how I interacted with them. It was all high marks. And yet every weekend and on the nights off, the guys I worked with, including all of the supervisors, not all of them, but many of them, would go out together and party, live it up. They went to some pretty rough places, actually. And I wouldn't go. And I never was advanced when positions, when opportunities came for me to advance. I was turned down when I'd been there longer and had more experience than lots of other guys. Now, I can't prove that that's why, but I believe it was. I believe because I refused to to bow and do the things they wanted me to do that I wasn't part of the crowd, and I was often pushed out, even at work, treated differently. Look, when our popularity and status and respect from others is on the chopping block because of our christian testimony we have to ask ourselves will we be all in for christ or not in at all It comes down really to what we value the most the favor and affection of god or the favor and affection of men that's really the question we need to answer before we're in a position where we're forced to answer because if we're truly all in then when the time comes that we have to choose we won't hesitate to take a stand for christ because he's what we value the most. Mordecai took a stand even when his peers stood against him and there were consequences. Let's keep reading as Haman now begins to plot against the Jews. Verses 7 through 11. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Osiris, they cast poor, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day. And they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not in the king's profits to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay ten thousand talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business that they may put it into the king's treasuries." So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you. The people also do with them as it seems good to you. That was easy. Gee, so pur or purim in the plural is the Persian word for the lot. Archaeologists have actually unearthed Purim from the Persian Empire era where uh, they find these clay uh, cubes inscribed with either cuneiform characters, those are these wedge-shaped characters that are used in the Persian writing system, or the cubes were inscribed with dots almost identical to modern-day dice that people use today for gambling and board games. And so casting a lot was literally throwing the dice. And there were several ancient cultures, including the Hebrews, who would cast lots as a way of seeking divine guidance. We see that in Leviticus chapter 16, um, in Joshua 18, many other places in Scripture. And so that's what Haman and those loyal to him were doing here. To determine the best time frame to carry out his plan to eliminate the Jews, they cast lots, which resulted in Haman having to wait 11 months to see his plan through. And so all that is left is to make his case before the king to gain the authority he needs to carry out this mass extermination of the Jews. And as people who are skilled in manipulation often do, Haman gives the king just enough information to make his case without providing the details necessary for the king to make a truly informed decision. And Haman is certain to sweeten the deal by assuring the king that if he's permitted to wipe out this anonymous people group from the kingdom, the king will actually prosper materially, which was particularly enticing at this point to Ahasuerus because the king's treasury had just been uh, massively depleted from his failed invasion in Greece. And what Haman was suggesting here was no small bounty. Uh, Again, the ancient historian Herodotus, he tells us that under uh, Ahasuerus' father, Darius, the annual revenue of the Persian Empire was 14000 five hundred and sixty talents so Haman's offer here to put ten thousand talents of silver which was about three hundred tons of silver almost a year's income back into the king's treasury would have been monumental to the king after losing so much and where would the money come from from the Jews Haman was planning to take everything from them And so uh, we'll talk about the threat to their very lives in a moment. But first, Haman says, I'm going to take away all that they have, all that they've worked for, all they've been blessed with, simply because of who they are, God's people, these Jews, which is a pattern throughout history. Anytime a people group in a given society falls out of favor with the ruling class or the government or the leader of a nation, the pocketbooks of those people being persecuted or oppressed are always targeted because that's a, that's a powerful pressure point for most people. And so the next question for us to consider is, if following God costs you your standard of living, are you still all in? If following God costs you your standard of living, are you still all in? In 1933, under the leadership of Adolf Hitler, laws were passed in Germany, beginning with the Nuremberg Laws, that forced the Jews out of their civil service jobs out of the universities and legal positions in the court system. They were no longer permitted to attend public schools, to go to theaters, to go to vacation resorts, to reside or even walk in certain sections of German cities. The Jews' businesses were seized or destroyed along with their homes. Hitler and the Nazis were taking away the prosperity of the Jewish people simply because they were Jews. This is a common tactic when the leadership in a given society turns against a particular group of people and so just to bring it closer to home in our society there are and have been ongoing conversations increasingly in our government and media and universities and court systems about the possibility of repealing the tax-exempt status for religious institutions including the church We've already seen uh, the government levy significant fines against Christian business owners who refuse to honor laws that violate their beliefs. And look, we can debate whether or not we agree or disagree with those decisions and discussions that are ongoing uh, as much as we want. That's fine. But the question for us to answer today is if following God begins to cost you your standard of living, are you still all in? Ask yourself, if I could no longer receive tax credit for the money that I give to my church, would I still give the same amount of money? Because that day may very likely come in our lifetime. What will we do if our standard of living is compromised because of our stand for Christ? If your job security was ever threatened because you're a believer if your business was taken away or shut down by the government because of your Christian testimony if you were denied entry into certain positions or educational opportunities because you refused to accept immoral policies forced on us by the court systems in this country I'm asking you are you still all in these are questions that may seem far-fetched to you in our free country but the reality is there are believers here who are already being forced to make those choices Will our church be forced to close its doors one day because the giving dries up when our tax-exempt status is taken away? Or will the church thrive under public and government discrimination for the defense of the gospel? And again, if, if there's any positive that comes from such persecution, it is that the true church always rises up from those who are not all in. There's Typically a purging that happens within the church of Jesus Christ whenever persecution comes as those who are not committed believers walk away under the pressure and only those who are truly all in remain. Which is exactly what happened, by the way, in the church in Germany under the Nazi regime. Most, do you know that most of the official Christian church in Germany supported Hitler And the Nazi party, while only a remnant who bravely stood against him in the evil of the Third Reich, remained true to the gospel. And because of that, that remnant suffered great persecution, but they were all in. And as a result, they saved thousands and thousands of souls and changed the world forever as they stood firm for the cause of Christ. Listen, no one remembers the names of the cowards, the church leaders who traded their convictions for the comfort and security of acceptance and following the path of popularity and prosperity. But the bookstores are full of books written about those who stood firm for Christ and forged a difficult path for others to follow as they stood against the evil tyranny of that regime. It's those who are all in that really make a difference in the world at the end of the day. Let's keep reading now as Haman's plan is set into action. Verses 12 through 15. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. So the king agrees to Haman's plan, still not truly understanding the possible ramifications of his decision, not the least of which would be the death of his own wife, who is, of course, a Jew, but he doesn't know it because she's never told him. This is now six years into their marriage when this decree was issued to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Interestingly, the 13th day of the first month, the day this royal edict to wipe out the Jews was written, was the eve of the Jewish Passover and so again as mentioned before this story of Esther is rife with prophetic symbolism and foreshadowing of the salvation story of God's people all the way through the Bible which of course culminates with the work of Christ on the cross the entire story points to the much larger story of the gospel and what is impossible to ignore In this part of the story, if you're paying attention, is the connection again with the story of King Saul and the Amalekites 600 or so years earlier. In 1 Samuel 15, verse 3, God says to King Saul through the prophet Samuel, Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them. Kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. In other words, kill everyone and everything. No prisoners, no survivors, no mercy, not even the animals. Complete annihilation is the strict instruction given to King Saul, which is hauntingly similar to the edict here of King Ahasuerus under the goading of Haman to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. No prisoners, no survivors. No mercy. Complete annihilation. Just as the pagan king has issued instructions to wipe out the Jews, Saul, centuries before, had strict instructions from the king of kings to completely wipe out Agag and his people. But if we skip down in 1 Samuel to verse 5, it says, Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah, as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, what? and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword, but... Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fattened calves, and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So Saul... Defeats the Amalekites, but he doesn't completely annihilate them as he was instructed to do by God. He leaves Agag, the king, alive along with the best of the livestock and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them, according to verse 9. So the best of all that the Amalekites had was spared in direct disobedience to the commandment of the Lord. And we don't have time today to continue reading that story, but if you read on, you'd see that Paul pays a heavy price for his disobedience. He was rejected as king by God, and King Agag then at least was killed by the prophet Samuel, but not all of the rest that was left alive. So in the big scheme of things, looking back so far back, what really is the big deal now for Esther? And Mordecai and the Jews. The Amalekites were soundly beaten, if not totally destroyed. David eventually becomes king and Israel prospers. Doesn't seem so bad until you fast forward to the story of Esther and you realize that Haman is a direct descendant of Agag, whose family was spared because of Saul's disobedience. Haman is alive only because of Saul's refusal to be all in. And now the result of Saul not carrying out the command of the Lord to completely annihilate the Amalekites is that an Amalekite is now attempting to do precisely what the Jews should have done to the Amalekites over a half a millennia earlier. Saul was not all in. And the effect was still being felt 600 years later by God's people. I'd say that's a pretty big deal. And Samuel goes on to explain to Saul, he says, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. First Samuel fifteen twenty two. God's command is for us to be all in. That means we listen and it means we obey because as we've seen with Saul, we're either all in or we're not in at all. There is no middle ground. And unfortunately, the effects of half-hearted, half-commitments to God are just as damaging to the church today as they were to God's people then. And the stakes are getting higher every day for the church. We cannot afford to be half-hearted, half-committed believers and expect the church to continue to thrive in the current cultural climate of our country. It's certainly not in the days ahead of us. In In fact, I believe that the future church will be made up of only those who are all in because those who are not will not be able to withstand the pressures that are brought to bear on the church as our society becomes increasingly intolerant of the gospel. Now, let's move ahead. We're going to go to chapter 4. This is only 17 verses long and so we're going to read through it fairly quickly and then focus on a couple more points for our message today. So, We'll read chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. This is now as the city of Susa and Jews throughout the kingdom are spiraling uh, spiraling into total chaos and confusion because the Jews are finding out that a death sentence has been pronounced over them, and their non-Jewish neighbors, many of whom uh, held nothing against the Jews, were told to prepare for this mass execution of their friends and neighbors throughout all of the provinces of the kingdom. So let's keep reading chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. the Jewish people are fasting and weeping and lamenting uh, to tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes uh, was really a traditional Near East practice in ancient times, not limited to the Jews. In fact, uh, Herodotus records that the Persians tore their clothes when they were defeated by the Greeks in the Battle of Salamis. So it was a bit of a universal way to signify that you were in total mourning, which the Jews were here in our story for the fate that was about to befall them. And, of course, uh, who wouldn't be, right? Let's keep reading. Verses 4 through 11. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people And Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law, to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. So Mordecai explains to Esther by way of Hathach that she must go to the king and beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people or all of the Jews will be killed. To which Esther replies, all the king's servants and the people of the king know that if any man or woman go into the king in the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except for the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he might live. But as for me, Mordecai, I've not been called to come to the king for 30 days. I haven't seen him in a month. I can't waltz into the inner room with him unannounced. In other words, what you're asking me to do, Mordecai, is also quite possibly a death sentence for me. Remember, The king doesn't yet know that Esther is a Jew. So at least for now, she would appear to be safe, at least in her own mind, unless she follows Mordecai's instructions here and all will be revealed. So let's just take a minute and put ourselves in Mordecai's shoes. His fellow Jews' lives are being threatened with total extinction. And if that isn't bad enough... Esther, who for all intents and purposes is his daughter. She's actually his cousin, but he's raised her as a daughter. And obviously by reading the previous chapters, we see the mutual affection and admiration and deep love between them. And now the only possible chance for survival based on what Mordecai has done, is for Mordecai to ask Esther, the girl that he's raised and nurtured and loved and protected her whole life, to risk that life in the process by approaching the king without being called after not seeing him for a month and pleading with him to repeal the royal edict that he's approved and sent out and even had drinks over. If the plan works, Mordecai and his daughter and the Jews are spared. But if the plan fails, everyone dies. It's all or nothing. There's no middle ground. Put yourself in Mordecai's shoes for a moment and then ask yourself, if following God costs you the safety of your family, Are you still all in I mentioned it last week the missionary families with small children who answered the call of God or to go to some of the darkest and most dangerous parts of the world to share the gospel and we commend them we we even encourage and support them with our money but what if it's our family what if it's our daughter what if it's our son or our wife or our husband are we still all in Or is that a line in the sand for us? Because God doesn't always call us to save. And yet in our culture, I think we tend to be risk-averse, particularly when it comes to our families. And I understand that well. But can we truly say that we value our relationship with God more than we do our relationships with our own family members? You don't have to tell me. These are tough questions, I know. But we have to decide whether or not we're all in. Because if we are, that may well mean risking our own safety and the safety of those we love if God calls us into a place of ministry or to a point of action where the outcome is uncertain. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 14, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. We have to love our families less than we love Jesus Christ if we're to follow him. It's what he was talking about. Just look at the lives of those who were all in for Jesus throughout the scriptures. Some of them were in and out of dangerous circumstances throughout their entire lives as they answered the call of God. The truth is I can't imagine being Mordecai in this situation. I can't imagine it. In such a seemingly impossible predicament and yet Mordecai was all in. As we see in his response to Esther. Let's read verses 12 through 14. Then Haman said Sorry, wrong chapter. Then then they told Mordecai what Esther had said, and then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews, for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise up for the Jews from another place but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. <laughs> what an amazing faith. Mordecai displays here. He doesn't know what the immediate outcome of his actions will be. But he still has the faith to believe that in the end, God will prevail. In ancient uh, rabbinical Hebrew, God was often referred to as the place And so when Mordecai responds to Esther here that if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, he may well have been making a direct reference to God here. We don't know for certain, but either way, he clearly seems to have the faith and wisdom even in this incredibly difficult decision to understand that what's happening may all be a part of God's plan as he says to Esther, essentially, hey, I know you might die in fact we may all die but who knows this may be the reason that you became queen to begin with to save us all in other words God's divine purpose either way Esther will ultimately prevail and you and I can't affect that so let's just be faithful and obey because obedience is better than sacrifice what a stunning response and what faith what insight to trust God for the outcome not even knowing what that outcome would be because Mordecai was all in, and he was asking no less of Esther, because he trusted in God enough to be willing to risk the safety of the one person on earth whom he loved more than any other. So the tables turned, as Esther must now make the biggest decision of her life. Is she going to be all in, or not in at all? Let's see what happens. Verse 15 to the end of the chapter. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. And so Esther agrees at the greatest risk to herself to go to the king and in doing so presents herself once again as a foreshadowing of the Christ as Jesus said do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul Matthew ten twenty eight. like Jesus she offers her life for the sake of her people because Esther was all in there was no middle ground It was all or nothing. In fact, when Esther says, and if, I perish, I perish. Interestingly, if you look at the Hebrew construction of that phrase, the Hebrew word asher carries more of a sense of when than it does and if. Meaning Esther was resolved to go to the king and was probably believing that she was going to her death. It's clear that even if it meant her own life, Esther was all in. She left no room for doubt in answering Mordecai's request. And I wonder, how would we answer given similar circumstances? If following God costs you your life, are you still all in? And the key to being able to answer yes to this and really to all of these questions is found in Mordecai's assertion to Esther in verse 14 when he asks her, who knows whether you've not come... To the kingdom for such a time as this. In other words, stop looking at your immediate circumstances, as dire as they may seem, and focus instead on the big picture. God has a plan, and you're a part of it. But in order to fulfill your part in that plan, you have to be all in. There is no middle ground. Even if your entire life is hanging in the balance, do we have the courage and resolve to say, if I perish, I perish, because I am all in. We're going to have to, if we have any hope of influencing the culture around us rather than trying to imitate the culture around us. We're going to have to be all in if we have any hope of saving others who are lost in this world by snatching them out of the fire. We're going to have to be all in if we've any hope of seeing the next generation in the church boldly proclaim the gospel instead of compromising it for the sake of popularity. Because if there's no conviction, no passion, no power in us to stand up and say, if I perish, I perish, I am all in. If we don't have that kind of commitment and resolve, is it any wonder that an entire generation is walking out on the church Because in many cases, the church in America has become half-hearted, half-committed, unresolved, and ineffective. But I'm telling you, Jesus didn't die for a half-hearted, half-committed, unresolved, and ineffective church. And whether we ever experience life-threatening persecution in our lifetime or not, we are all called to give up everything, our very lives, and follow Jesus Christ which is exactly what the next generation needs to see in us. Remember, Jesus said, Any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. It's what the Apostle Paul was expressing when he said, I do not accept my life, or I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Acts 20, 24. How many of us can say that about ourselves? I do not account my life of any value nor is precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received. You see, when Esther said, if I perish, I perish. In effect, she was saying, I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself if only I may finish my course, the ministry that I received. It's called being all in. And it's what he demands from each of us. Because he didn't die for a half-hearted, half-committed, unresolved, and ineffective church. No, he's looking for men and women who have counted the cost. Fully understanding what they're signing up for and without any hesitation are ready to say, yes, I am all in. No matter what it costs me, if I perish, I perish. I'm all in because at the end of the day it's an all or nothing proposition you're either all in for Christ or you're not in at all there is no middle ground there are no varying levels of Christianity that we get to choose from there is but one way there is one way To follow Jesus Christ. That's all in. Let's pray.